was slowing, and the outlook wasn't good. His next action at the Fed was probably going to be exactly what Baker and Reagan wanted him to do, to ease up and lower interest rates. But he didn't tell them that because he didn't trust them. If he said anything, they would leak it to the press. Interest rates are going down, they'd say. Or worse, the Federal Reserve caved to their pressure, undermining Volcker's credibility. The chairman left the White House sour and uneasy. Sometimes the best thing to do, he had learned, was to absorb the pressure, take it all into himself, do nothing. When he had been confirmed as chairman by the Senate Banking Committee, he had promised that he would report any attempt by the White House to influence him. He was unsure whether the pressure had reached the point where he was obliged to report it. He decided to say nothing. For Baker, it was more a routine discussion. He didn't want to be seen as pressuring Volcker. Of course the administration wanted lower rates. The White House always did. But the Fed chairman was independent, and if Volcker didn't like meeting with the president, he didn't have to show up. Or he could walk out or complain. He never did. Volcker soon lowered interest rates in response to the economy's overall weakness, as he had expected to. Reagan was re-elected in a landslide in November. In early 1985, Reagan appointed James Baker as Treasury Secretary. Baker saw another opportunity to gain some political input into the Fed's interest rate policies. Though the chairman dominated the Fed, he couldn't act unilaterally. The Fed sets two short-term interest rates. The less important rate is the discount rate, the interest rate the Fed charges other banks for overnight loans. Although it has only a small actual effect on the economy, at that time the discount rate was the Fed's only publicly announced rate. As a result, changes to it had considerable psychological impact on the financial markets and the economy. In order to change the discount rate, the chairman has to have a majority of the votes of the seven members of the Fed's Board of Governors. His vote is only one of those seven. Under the law and the Constitution, the President makes the appointments to the Board, and the Senate confirms them. Board members are appointed to 14-year terms, partial life appointments designed to raise the Board above politics. But many members wearied of serving in an institution so controlled by its chairman, and resigned after a few years. As a result, the administration had put a number of Republicans on the seven-member Board. Baker, who had primary responsibility for finding Board members, preferred Reaganauts. He particularly liked those who favored lower interest rates. One of Baker's early picks for the Fed board was Manuel H. Johnson, Jr., his 36-year-old assistant treasury secretary, a former Green Beret intelligence specialist. Soon after Johnson joined the board in 1986, he told Volcker, You have to understand, there's a deal here. He was expected to vote for lower interest rates the first chance he got. Volcker was appalled. Johnson informed Volcker that there were now four votes, a majority, to reduce interest rates. Is Baker pressuring you to do this? Volcker asked. I'm sure Jim Baker supports this, Johnson replied. On February 24, 1986, Johnson and three other board members took charge and voted four to three to lower the discount rate. Volcker found himself in the minority for the first time. Goodbye, he announced to the board after the vote was taken. You're going to have to do it on your own. He got up and walked out, slamming the door. Hard. 
He didn't type, so when he got back to his office, he wrote out his resignation letter by hand. Voting down the chairman was an outright rebellion as far as he was concerned, an unfederal reserve thing to do. It was a staggering breach of club etiquette. Federal Reserve tradition virtually compelled the board to deal with disagreements and division by working toward consensus. Volker told Baker what had happened. They could get a new Federal Reserve chairman, he said. Baker, a patrician lawyer from Texas, said soothingly, It's not that important. You're overreacting. But Volker had concluded that the vote that morning had been a cabal, a blow to the heart of the independence of the Federal Reserve System. He also thought that Jim Baker saw it as a big political victory. Baker called to reassure Johnson. You did everything you could, Baker said. I support you completely. Johnson knew that he and the other rebellious governors were playing into Baker's hands. Later that afternoon, Johnson and the other three board members backed down. They agreed to reconsider, effectively rescinding the interest rate cut before it was announced. And Volcker agreed to stay though it was never the same. The Reagan administration wanted a puppet, he concluded. I did not trust them. It was impossible. There was no way you could restore the sense of trust. Jim Baker didn't necessarily want a puppet. He just wanted a Republican. It was not a matter of trust. It was a matter of good politics. He also wanted a Fed chairman with a more agreeable temperament. Volcker's crankiness and his I'm-above-politics air were hard to take. In 1987, Volcker's second term was about to expire, and Baker was arguing forcefully to the president. It's time to have your own Fed chairman. To my mind, there's only one person we can turn to. That was Alan Greenspan, 61, a high-profile, low-key New York economist who had served as chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors in the Ford White House. Greenspan was perfect, Baker felt. He had seen the man up close for a dozen years. Baker had been Under Secretary of Commerce in 1975 in the Ford administration and had attended White House economic policy meetings where Greenspan was the key sensible voice. When Baker was running Ford's presidential campaign in 1976, he had brought Greenspan on Ford's campaign plane as the economic spokesman. And in 1980, Greenspan had provided critical help in crafting a key economic speech for candidate Reagan. One of Greenspan's finest moments had come as head of the Bipartisan National Commission on Social Security Reform that had restored the Social Security system to temporary financial solvency in 1983. It had been a masterstroke of consensus building, Baker thought, as both Democrats and Republicans signed on. Baker himself had led some of the secret bipartisan negotiations at his own home. When Baker left the White House in 1985 to become Treasury Secretary, he had asked Greenspan to help him on his Senate confirmation hearings. Again, he found Greenspan's advice informed and politically astute. Baker was not unmindful of the importance of the next year's presidential election, when his longtime Texas friend, Vice President George Bush, would be seeking the presidency. Having a Republican Fed chairman serving in 1988 and in a future Bush presidency could make all the difference in the world. Baker was convinced that Greenspan was the person they needed at the Fed. A team player. In 1987, Reagan had brought in former Senate Republican Majority Leader Howard H. Baker Jr. as Chief of Staff to salvage the presidency during the Iran-Contra scandal. 
Howard Baker, a courtly Washington-wise Paul, had represented Tennessee in the Senate for 18 years. He had served as vice chairman of the Senate Watergate Committee in 1973-74 and watched the Nixon presidency dissolve in lies and self-deceptions. When he accepted Reagan's offer to become White House Chief of Staff, he insisted that he be in on all important decisions and secrets. The Tennessee Baker sat in while the President and the Texas Baker talked several times about the coming Fed chairmanship decision. Jim Baker wanted to dump Volcker, and he was pushing hard for Greenspan. Howard Baker knew Greenspan pretty well. The two had associated in Republican circles in the 1970s, and they'd played tennis a number of times at Greenspan's private club in the Virginia suburbs. One day in the spring, the Bakers invited Greenspan, who headed a private business consulting firm in New York City, to fly to Washington to meet with them at Jim Baker's house in northwest Washington. They had one question. Would Greenspan be available? If it's not going to be Paul, Greenspan replied, I would accept. Greenspan wanted assurances that the very existence of the meeting, and certainly the topic, would not be revealed. It would be devastating if it got out that they were thinking of replacing Volcker. Very damaging, he said. The financial markets were really quite unstable. Now that was interesting, Greenspan said to himself as he headed home on the shuttle. He was aware of some of the friction between the administration and Volcker, but not that it had reached this point. The circumstance of the meeting with the Bakers was, in certain respects, almost more important than the content, he thought. They could have picked up the phone and asked, in the remote case, Paul leaves, would you be willing to come down? Instead, they had arranged a fairly elaborate get-together. Something unusual was up. He was a math whiz and was always calculating probabilities. The chance that he would get the appointment was not in the low range, one out of ten. It was high probability, Greenspan figured, maybe three out of four. Back in his Washington days in Ford's White House, Greenspan frequently visited his mentor, Arthur F. Burns, who was Fed chairman from 1970 to 1978. He had studied under Burns as a graduate student at Columbia in the 1950s. As Greenspan learned about the job of Fed chairman, he concluded that it was amorphous, not something he would enjoy doing. Greenspan liked the mechanical, analytical work of basic business economics, inventories, arithmetic, physical reality. Monetary policy, the setting of interest rates, was far more complex. It entailed trying to figure out what the business conditions and inflation were going to be in the future. Interest rates had their impact months or a year or more down the road. Seeing the future was about the most impossible task imaginable. Someone who was right about 60% of the time would be very fortunate, he believed. But now he wanted the job. He had watched what Volcker had done to transform the chairmanship and perhaps save the American economy. It was anything but amorphous. The next morning, Howard Baker reported to President Reagan. Had the president decided what he wanted to do? No, Reagan said. He hadn't really decided yet. I will set up an appointment to go speak to Paul, Baker recommended and I'm going to try to find out if he wants to be reappointed because, you know, there's a fair chance, Mr. President, that he doesn't. Reagan agreed. In Volcker's office the next day, Baker said the president had to make a decision about the Fed chairmanship and wanted to know whether Volcker was interested in being appointed to a third term. 
Volker paused. If I were, he said finally, would the president reappoint me? I don't know, Baker said. Of course, that's up to the president. If you are interested, you should tell me, and I'll pass it on to him. On one level, Volker realized they might not care about his desire unless they were seriously considering offering him reappointment. On its face, Baker's inquiry suggested that Reagan might be ready to reappoint him. Let me think about it, Volker replied. He was going fishing, he said, and he would call when he returned. Baker left unsure. Part of him thought that if Volker had said he would be honored to have a third term, the chances were that Reagan would reappoint him. At the same time, Baker knew that Volker didn't want to beg. Perhaps the proud Volker didn't want to be seen as not having been asked. Perhaps he wanted to know in advance if he had the option to stay. Or, more darkly, it was possible that Volker wanted to be asked just to turn it down. After his fishing trip, Volker called Howard Baker and asked to see Reagan. Baker set up a meeting the next day. He figured it could go either way. The chairman came to the White House living quarters to see them. After brief greetings, Volker pulled out a letter and gave it to the president. It said that he chose not to be reappointed, and he was there because he wanted to tell the president personally. For Volker, it had been a difficult decision. After a life almost exclusively of government service, he had little money. In addition, neither the President nor the Secretary of the Treasury nor the Chief of Staff would offer him reappointment on terms that would ensure his independence and dignity, as he defined them. He told colleagues that he'd never asked for a job in his life, and he wasn't going to start now. He was going to be sixty in several months. When had a person done his job? When was it time to leave? High inflation had been driven out, but in some respects, so had Big Paul. The Volcker era was over. Howard Baker called Jim Baker to report that Volker didn't want to stay. Jim Baker was delighted. We got the son of a bitch, he told a New York friend. Then Jim Baker was on the phone. Volker had decided to leave. Was Greenspan still interested? Yes, he said in milliseconds. Later in the week, Monday, June 1st, Greenspan was at the orthopedist. He had pulled his back. Someone in the doctor's office walked in and declared, in a tone that indicated that it was surely a joke, The President of the United States wants to speak to you. Alan, said Reagan, I want you to be my chairman of the Federal Reserve Board. Thank you, Mr. President, Greenspan replied. I'd be honored to do so. That night, Greenspan attended a birthday.